You're listening to On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library. Welcome back to a new episode of On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library System. I'm Abby, here with my co-host EJ. That's right. I'm EJ. In today's episode, we're sharing how to grow, learn, and connect at all nine branches of JMRL. After that, we'll be discussing Kate Chopin's short story, The Story of an Hour. We're wrapping up today's episode with our mini book chats. In 10 words or less, we'll be describing books we're reading. Now let's dive into what's going on at your local library locations these next few weeks. Visit the Bookmobile at the Charlottesville City Market tomorrow, July 1st, beginning at 9 a.m., with story time at 11. Central has two exciting offerings you won't want to miss. Register now for the four-week memoir writing workshop. The first class is Thursday, July 6th at 6.30 p.m. There will also be a craft supply swap on Saturday, July 8th from 10 to 1. Crozet is hosting Wild Rock for a live animal meet and greet Wednesday, July 5th at 10 a.m. Visit Gordon for a spectacular performance by master storyteller and theater artist Doug Berkey, who will take you on a journey of classic wisdom stories from around the world using masks, puppets, mime, drama, comedy, and music. Mark your calendars for Wednesday, July 12th at 2 p.m. Green also has a special summer performance coming up Thursday, July 13th at 2 p.m. Join the adventure of two unlikely heroes who work together to save their town and the planet from a super polluting mastermind. Explore Newton's law of motion, air pressure, chemical reactions, and more on Thursday, July 13th at 2 p.m. Louisa offers chair yoga every Monday at 11.30 a.m. This class offers the opportunity for gentle stretching, strengthening, and relaxation, ideal for those who want a softer, slow-paced yoga experience. At Nelson on Thursday, July 13th at 2 p.m., kids ages 7 to 11 can join local artist Tony Goncharoff in exploring some of the amazing qualities of watercolors. You will learn different techniques to create your own unique painting. At Northside, every Wednesday in July from 4 to 5 p.m., there will be a creative writing workshop for teens in the style of a college class. Learn about drafting and editing your work and how to give and receive feedback. Try out interesting new writing prompts and perspectives. Scottsville is hosting Saturday Cinema. This summer, there are superhero movies and popcorn every Saturday from 1 to 3. As always, check the calendar to find out more information. Listeners, you know what time it is. It's overbooked time. That's right. We're having a very mini podcast book club today. Just one episode in which we'll be discussing The Story of an Hour by Kate Chopin. We're going to begin by reading the entire story for you. It's only two pages long. Then we'll discuss this story by thinking about the five C's of storytelling. Circumstance, curiosity, characters, conversation, and conflict. Before we begin, here's a bit of background information on Kate Chopin. 
She was born in Missouri, but lived in Louisiana after she was married, and her short stories and novels are based in Louisiana. She was controversial at her time because of the female-centered subjects she addressed. While she denied being a feminist, she was described as a woman who took women extremely seriously and wrote about their experiences that no one else wanted to talk about. Their unique and independent lives, especially their interior lives, needs, and desires. Let's get to it. Here for you today is The Story of an Hour by Kate Chopin. Don't forget, we'd also love to hear from you. Email us with your thoughts at podcast at jmrl.org. Knowing that Mrs. Mallard was afflicted with a heart trouble, great care was taken to break to her as gently as possible the news of her husband's death. It was her sister, Josephine, who told her, in broken sentences, veiled hints that revealed in half-concealing. Her husband's friend, Richards, was there too, near her. It was he who had been in the newspaper office when intelligence of a railroad disaster was received, with Brentley Mallard's name leading the list of killed. He had only taken the time to assure himself of its truth by a second telegram, and he had hastened to forestall any less careful, less tender friend in bearing the sad message. She did not hear the story as many women have heard the same, with a paralyzed inability to accept its significance. She wept at once with sudden, wild abandonment in her sister's arms. When the storm of grief had spent itself, she went away to her room alone. She would have no one follow her. There stood, facing the open window, a comfortable, roomy armchair. Into this she sank pressed down by a physical exhaustion that haunted her body and seemed to reach her soul. She could see in the open square before her house the tops of trees that were all aquiver with a new spring life. The delicious breath of rain was in the air. In the street below, a peddler was crying his wares. The notes of a distant song which someone was singing reached her faintly, and countless sparrows were twittering in the eaves. There were patches of blue sky showing here and there through the clouds that had met and piled one above the other in the west facing her window. She sat with her head thrown back upon the cushion of the chair quite motionless, except when a sob came up into her throat and shook her, as a child who has cried itself to sleep continues to sob in its dreams. She was young with a fair, calm face whose lines bespoke repression and even a certain strength, but now there was a dull stare in her eyes, whose gaze was fixed away off yonder on one of those patches of blue sky. It was not a glance of reflection, but rather indicated a suspension of intelligent thought. There was something coming to her, and she was waiting for it, fearfully. What was it? She did not know. It was too subtle and elusive to name, but she felt it creeping out of the sky, reaching towards her through the sounds, the scents, the color that filled the air. Now her bosom rose and fell tumultuously. She was beginning to recognize this thing that was approaching to possess her, and she was striving to beat it back with her will as powerless as her two white slender hands would have been. 
When she abandoned herself, a little whispered word escaped her slightly parted lips. She said it over and over under her breath. Free, free, free. The vacant stare and look of terror that had followed it went from her eyes. They stayed keen and bright. Her pulses beat fast and the coursing blood warmed her relaxed every inch in her body. She did not stop to ask if it were or were not a monstrous joy that held her. A clear and exalted perception enabled her to dismiss the suggestion as trivial. She knew that she would weep again when she saw the kind, tender hands folded in death. The face that had never looked save with love upon her fixed and gray and dead. But she saw beyond the bitter moment a long procession of years to come that would belong to her absolutely, and she opened and spread her arms out to them in welcome. There would be no one to live for during those coming years. She would live for herself. There would be no powerful will bending hers in that blind persistence of which men and women believe they have the right to impose a private will upon a fellow creature. A kind intention or a cruel intention made the act seem no less a crime as she looked upon it in that brief moment of illumination. And yet she had loved him. Sometimes. Often she had not. What did it matter? What could love, the unsolved mystery, count for in the face of this possession of self-assertion which she suddenly recognized as the strongest impulse of her being? Free body and soul free, she kept whispering. Josephine was kneeling before the closed door with her lips to the keyhole, imploring for admission. Louise, open the door. I beg, open the door. You will make yourself ill. What are you doing? Louise, for heaven's sakes, open the door. Go away. I am not making myself ill. No. She was drinking in a very elixir of life through that open window. Her fancy was running riot along those days ahead of her, spring days and the summer days and all sorts of days that would be her own. She breathed a quick prayer that life might be long. It was only yesterday she had thought with a shudder that life might be long. She rose at length and opened the door to her sister's importunities. There was a feverish triumph in her eyes and she carried herself unwittingly like a goddess of victory. She clasped her sister's waist, and together they descended the stairs. Richard stood waiting for them at the bottom. Someone was opening the front door with a latchkey. It was Brentley Mallard, who entered, a little travel-stained, composedly carrying his gripsack and umbrella. He had been far from the scene of the accident, and did not even know there had been He stood amazed at Josephine's piercing cry at Richard's quick motion to screen him from the view of his wife. When the doctors came, they said that she had died of heart disease, of the joy that kills. So we're going to begin by talking about circumstance. And this can also be thought of as the inciting incident. But another way to think of it is asking yourself why the story is being told. The main thing I wanted to talk about with circumstance was just a a brief comment about the amazing nature of short stories and that they have all of the drama and tension of a full-length novel, but it's in a compact package. So that very first sentence, 
just packs a huge punch the news of her husband's death. That's in the very first sentence. So I just wanted to essentially appreciate how quickly the story opens and how much momentum it has. Like we heard that in EJ's reading, like it just never lets up. But EJ, do you have any thoughts about circumstance? I think you just kind of hit it, the nail on the head, Abby. The circumstances is really kind of covered in the very beginning when we learn that we have this news. It's been confirmed twice. Josephine and Richards go to tell Louise and take good care to break the news in a way that won't upset Louise because maybe they're already worried about the predisposition of what she could potentially do. So I think that is, you just set the circumstance up perfectly. So I think that leads right into kind of the curiosity piece as well. Yes. For our curiosity conversation, I wanted for us both to say, like, where did you first feel curious? Because for me, and I'm going to talk about this a little more when we get into the conversation piece, but I will say that for me, almost the first whole half, when it's just like the husband is dead and the news is being broken and she's crying, that all seemed very typical. Where I first started feeling curious, really, was towards the middle of the story when it says something coming to her. She was waiting for it fearfully. It's creeping. And then when it goes approaching to possess her and she was striving to beat it back with her will, all of that phrasing and kind of stirring up in this stew here really, for me, indicates like some sort of demon or spirit something kind of otherworldly and profound, intense, it's unwanted, it's scary, unusual. So that's when the story really starts to kind of take a turn for me. And that was when I really started getting curious because I was like, what is it that's possessing her? So I'm interested to know when you felt that first twinge of curiosity, was it in the first line? Because that hooked me, but it didn't necessarily have me feeling curious. Yeah, I mean, the first line kind of kills the curiosity with like afflicted with a heart trouble. So we already kind of know. And then the second paragraph breaks down how her husband was killed. I think where I immediately got curious is the line, into this she sank, pressed down by a physical exhaustion that haunted her body and seemed to reach into her soul. So this is when they start describing the roomy armchair that's sitting in front of the open square before her house, the tops of trees that were all a quiver with a new spring life. So obviously she's talking about a window. That's where it starts to spark my curiosity there is because an armchair in front of a window is very much purposely placed there for the reason of looking out. And so I'm wondering if this is an armchair that she's visited and sank into numerous times is this something that she has always used as an escape because she seems to me it seems that she's familiar with this view she's familiar with this chair she's familiar with this feeling of physical exhaustion and maybe not reaching into her soul after she finds out her husband's death but but maybe it's something that she's used to feeling and used to doing and so i guess my curiosity was like this is is this new or is this not new You know, is this something that she does a lot or is this something that's something that is normal in her life? I also have one more comment about curiosity, which is that when I read the story to myself, 
I really first started being curious when it was all the haunting and the possession and stuff. But when you read it out loud just now, I became curious at a different point, which just goes to show when you read short stories, one of the beauty is that you can read it over and over and you find new things and there's more layers. But today, just this morning when you read it, I became curious with the word choice of story in that third paragraph. She did not hear the story as many women have heard the same. I think that I almost glossed over that in the first reading and maybe almost read in my mind news. But story is so different from news because story implies fiction, almost like Richard's almost giving the slightest hint that it was intentionally fabricated. It's just really interesting that that word choice of story was chosen in describing the telling of Brentley being dead. But yeah, characters. What about these characters? Sure. So I guess there's four total characters, human characters, um, if you want to bring in this like freedom or this fear character that's like creeping inside of Louise. I guess you could we could talk about how that has humanistic, you know, words that describe it and characteristics that way. But the four main characters are obviously Louise Mallard, who is afflicted with a great heart trouble and gets the news of her husband's death. We have her husband, who as the reader and as living in Louise's shoes we think is dead and that's Brentley Mallard. And we have Louise's sister, Josephine who helps break the news to her and her husband's friend Richards. So those are, that's who we've got. They obviously care about Louise and her well being, and they cared enough or Richards cared enough about hearing about Brentley's death to confirm it once in a newspaper. And then again with a telegram, Louise Here's the news is struck by grief immediately and like falls into Josephine's arms. So you get a you get a very caring sense from Josephine that she's she's a caring sister. They seem close. Them both being present when she hears this news kind of just represents a bond and support and just like the pillars of friendship that they have. They're there to console Louise. They could have done this told her and left you know josephine didn't have to be at her sister's like keyhole of her bedroom begging for louise to answer so again it just shows how how special louise is to them and that that must be something there must be something there for louise they just care about her so much but louise here she's she's the character that we learn the most about we we focus on her inner conflict her realization that she could have a better life now that she's free, free, free. And what is interesting to me about the character's actions is at the very end of the story, once Louise opens the door, you know, she's accepted her freedom. She's happy, I think. But Richard's and Josephine's reaction to Brentley opening the door is very interesting. So Josephine screams like she's seen a ghost. So that kind of tracks. And Richard's jumps in front of Louise to hide Brentley from Louise because again he is so concerned about Louise seeing Brentley so it does make me wonder if there's something with Richards what's going on with Richards and his his feelings or his love for Louise as a friend so he's doing a lot to protect her I think from that instance 
So what do you think, Abby? I have a few thoughts. First, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said she was happy. I think don't shy away from it. She's happy. The Richards thing is really interesting to me. Like I read this as Richards was hoping to swoop in and be the new man. That's what I think. And that last line in the second to last paragraph after Josephine's piercing cry at Richard's quick motion to screen him from the view of his wife. So he's screening Brentley from Louise's instant death because I'm assuming she like instantly has a heart attack and collapses and dies. So there's that. I also had a different thought about characters, their last name being Mallard. So I wanted to look up about Mallard ducks. Apparently, Mallard ducks only mate for a few months of the year, and the male abandons the female in the spring when she lays the eggs. And this story is set with trees that were all a quiver with the new spring life. So I think that Kate Chopin is just connecting them to ducks like they're not meant to mate for life. And I think that's her view on it is like they, Brentley and Louise are not meant to be together forever. And one of them had to die, I guess, because there was no other way out. It's really sad. I love this mallard duck comparison we're having. I think that's a really, really interesting piece. And I would not put past Kate Chopin to try to do something like that, to have like a little hidden meaning in there. Okay, so conversations. We're going to talk now about what sort of feelings are evoked in this story. What kind of conversations does this spark? There are two basically conversation questions that I wanted us to think about. The first was, and I think I know your answer to this because you have repeatedly come back to this, but I'll be honest, for me, I totally glossed over it. My first question was, did you notice the heart trouble reference at the beginning of the story? It's literally like the fourth word of the story. But I think because it's like the fourth word of the story and I'm just like starting out and I'm reading and I'm going quickly. I think in a way that I I can't tell if that's right at the beginning in order to make sure we notice it or right at the beginning because she knows that the quick readers are going to just kind of like gloss over that and then at the end maybe have forgotten about it. I don't know because when I reached the end, I had forgotten about the first line about the heart trouble. But then when I went back to the beginning, just to like, kind of relive it, I was like, Oh, there's the heart trouble at the beginning. Oh, it's like foreshadowing. So it kind of made it all the all the cooler. But were you thinking about that throughout this heart trouble, like when she was having these convulsions and stuff, because I didn't see her as a frail or delicate character, because I totally missed the first line about heart trouble. And I wonder if you had a different experience or basically what you thought about that. Yeah, definitely. I definitely noticed the words heart trouble. And I guess I took it as that was the reason why so much care was taken from Richards and Josephine, not just caring for Louise as a person, but also because she has this kind of medical affliction that she has to deal with or medical issue that they have to take care in dealing with. And they must be aware of it. And that's why they took such care. I don't know if I necessarily correlated Louise's heart trouble and her kind of wild abandonment, crying, weeping, going off into a room. I don't know if I have a correlation between those two things because in her room, I I don't think she went through like, she went through internal struggle in her room, but I don't know if, if I'm reading physical 
like trouble besides the weeping and the wild abandon abandonment line. I'm seeing a lot of like the line, like the vacant stare and the look of terror that had followed it went from her eyes right there. That line to me basically takes away. I guess maybe that line dismisses the met, the medical issue, the heart trouble issue for me and puts it, puts it more mental in her head because she's having an internal conflict. Yeah, I just think that's the big conversation piece for me is this heart trouble. Like how much is that physical and how much is it really just a metaphor? Because you have to wonder, like you had mentioned the armchair and thinking about what is Louise in her past life. One of the questions I had was, how did this quote unquote heart trouble manifest before the story? Like how did they know she had heart trouble? Are we talking like heart pains or are we talking like, okay, this is written in the 1800s and hysterical women have heart trouble because they're emotional. So I think that's really interesting because obviously there's a physical component of it. She died, but the doctors said she died of heart disease. So of course, like I think they're going to put a medical spin on it. Whereas maybe someone in Louise's camp would say she didn't die from a heart attack. She died from a broken heart. But my second piece that I wanted to bring up was, again, maybe this is my cynicism, but was there ever hope for Louise? She's described as young. She has a fair, calm face. Honestly, when she was in her room being like, I'm free, I I was able to be swept up with her a little bit. But part of me was also like, "Uh oh, Richards is downstairs waiting for her. And I was thinking, you know, is she really going to be allowed to be, you know, a widow? Is she really going to be allowed to be a young single woman? Or is she just going to get swept up into a new relationship? And in Kate Chopin's world, does Kate Chopin think that it's possible to be free and to be in a relationship? Or like, is that impossible? I think that Louise went through what some might call a transformation in her room after she got the news. And so I'm viewing Louise, even though she dies of of heart disease or heart trouble or a broken heart, whatever you want to call it, I'm viewing Louise as a very strong woman coming out of the bedroom, being able to descend the stairs with her sister's help after hearing such tragic news, but also going through this internal struggle. I'm viewing her as a very strong woman. So I'm thinking that she's a different woman than she was at the beginning of the story. So if she were to live at the end of the story and we had a second story, I would think that Louise would be as strong as she was capable of being strong with her sister, maybe at her side. And I know Richards is there like waiting at the bottom of the stairs and they're in like, that's a very deliberate line. Richard stood waiting for them at the bottom. It's an extremely deliberate line of Kate Chopin to put in. She didn't have to put that in there. She could have just ignored Richard's existence at that point. So maybe that's what you're, I kind of see that's what you're maybe reading into there is that you're like, he's stood waiting for them at the bottom you know, not just like waiting to comfort a friend, but like waiting to take her away into her new life with him, that kind of thing. But I I would hope that Louise would be able to put her foot down and have the self-confidence after coming out of what what I think is 
is at least an emotionally abusive relationship with Brentley. And I think that kind of folds us right into conflict really nicely. The primary conflict is Louise's internal struggle between the societal expectations that she has and her own desires, her own well-being and what she wants. She's depicted as like a submissive wife confined to this very traditional role that was assigned to women in the late 19th century. So the marriage has limited her individuality and her independence And she's expected to grieve very heavily for her husband's death, which, again, is another obligation that even in death, you can't escape your husband at this time. Even in death, you are expected to go in a very deep, deep mourning for your husband. But once she contemplates the news, she kind of gets this newfound freedom. And then she gets these very conflicting emotions that converge inside of her and I think that's the the description of like something coming at her something coming towards her what is it it it's it's I think it's a feeling of like unease and um, unknown but it's also a feeling of freedom you know those three words free 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 so she's getting this like burgeoning sense of liberation and joy at the prospect of living for herself finally when she's in her room the whole story becomes symbolism, symbolism, symbolism. The open window becomes a symbol of opportunity and freedom, offering Louise a glimpse of the possibilities beyond her current life. So in that little tiny window that we see, because we get a description of the window, she could see in the open square before her house, the tops of trees that were all a quiver with the new spring life. The, the delicious breath of rain was in the air. So we're we're getting a lot here. We're getting the street. There's a peddler crying for his wares. There's a song that she's hearing. I mean, she is hearing all of the great scenes. This reminds me of like a Disney scene in like Beauty and the Beast or something when Belle is like running through the French village and you have like all those people exploding from their windows. That's what I'm imagining she's like hearing. Like all these people in great, having a great time. And she's like, oh, wow. Like life can be cool and fun and I can be a part of it but yet she's still dealing with this struggle that she can't (laughs) quite figure out but eventually I think it comes to her you know her new sense or found sense of liberation and then she finally starts embracing it for herself I agree with you the conflict that I pulled out as the most heartbreaking conflict was the Louise versus Louise She has to go through the journey. You know, it's a short story, but she still goes through the journey. And part of the heartbreak and part of the emotion of it is that there are those moments when she's not ready to go on the journey or she's scared to go on the journey or she feels guilty or she feels unsure. You know, there's that line. And yet she had loved him. But then there's that dash sometimes. And then, of course, she says, what what does love matter anymore? You know, it's it's over. But, the, you know, love. I mean, we're conditioned to remember like you loved someone. So it's and he had loved her. And do you think that it's a happy ending for Louise? Because the ending is not so simple for me. Like, I don't like I feel like I'm still trying to work it out. I mean, in on one hand, she dies. But on the other hand, the word joy is in that last sentence. She died of heart disease, of the joy that kills. So it's like at least she was happy before she died. I kind of agree. I don't know if it's happy or not happy. I think Louise is happy at the end. And I think using joy is the very last 
like sentence, that phrase of the joy that kills, like using that as the very last line in the whole story does make me think that she could have been joyous or joyful when she died and that it happened immediately. And yeah, the joy that kills is such an interesting like, hmm, which part was that? Which was the joy that kills? Did she die knowing she had freedom? Did she die knowing she didn't have freedom? Did she even see him? Like, we don't know. Like, that's another question. Like, we don't even know. Like, maybe she didn't see him and she really just did die of heart disease after all of that, like, turmoil she went through. Like, there's just so many questions here. And I think that just is a testament to good writing and and, and something that's very enjoyable to consume and think about and, and to analyze. And yeah, I think it's a, a great eloquy for enjoying short stories every once in a while because they really give you something to think about. Our last segment of today's episode is Book Chat. Abby and I are excited to share our latest book chats with you. And for an added twist, we're limiting to just 10 words. Take it away, Abby. Today for my 10 words or less book chat, I will be hopefully intriguing you to the book The Maid by Nita Prose. And here's The Maid by Nita Prose in 10 words or less. Cozy mystery featuring lovable neurodivergent woman in which justice prevails. And today for my mini book chat, I will be talking about Atalanta by Jennifer Saint. Here's my 10 words. Artemis protege Atalanta leaves forest for ship, finds real self. We hope you enjoy our mini book chats. If you want to send us your own mini book chat, please do at podcast at jmrl.org. Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast community. We're so happy to have you. We hope you'll join us in taking a moment to thank the friends of the library who generously support this endeavor. If you'd like to learn more or join the friends, you can head to their website at jmrlfriends.org. That's all for us today. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. So don't forget, you can get involved on social media or by emailing us at podcast at jmrl.org. Thanks for tuning in. We're glad to be on the same page. page.